If you saw the front of the bulletin this morning, uh, the front of the bulletin asked a very profound question. A question that I think if we were to go throughout our community, if we were to ask our friends and our neighbors, people in our family, if we were to ask them this question, I think among many we would get we would get a very disturbing answer. I think if we were to go and to ask those who live around us, if we were to travel throughout many parts of our country and our world and ask them this question, is there any hope? Depending on how people understood that question, I think a lot of them would say no. Now, I think many of them would misunderstand our purpose in asking this question. They might relate it to our economic situation. They could relate it to the political situation. But that would be looking at this question in far too narrow of a scope. Because the book of Zephaniah is talking about a particular time in history that is yet to come. He is talking about a day that is referred to throughout the Old Testament and into the New as the Day of the Lord. And in this day, if you begin reading, especially in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, and you stop there, you may very well also come away from this text answering the question, no. Uh, whoever got stuck doing our lag lesson this week, probably when they got to the end of verse 6, they weren't in the cheeriest of moods. And yet I would tell you this morning that unless we see what God is going to do, unless we see how God interacts with the world and God's view on the relationship He has with humanity... If we do not see the bad, if you will, the ugly, if you will, then we will not understand the answer to the question on the front of our bulletin. So if you would, if you have Zephaniah chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, I invite you to stand with me this morning as we read God's Word together. Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut from this place the remnant of Baal. In the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, 
those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. You may be seated. Zephaniah the prophet is writing here during what would be considered a good time in the history of the nation of Judah. Things are going very well. After having a couple of kings in a row who were very evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the, because of that God was punishing them, and, and they had become a part of the influence of the Assyrian Empire, Zephaniah begins writing in a good time. When the king, Ammon of Judah, had been killed, there was a revolt within his, uh, within his castle, within his uh, kingdom, and they come against him and they kill him. And so it looks like there's going to be a change. But if you remember way back, God had always made a promise that it would be someone from the house of David who would sit on David's throne. And so the people of Judah rise up and they take Ammon's son, who is just eight years old, a boy by the name of Josiah, and they place him on the throne. And during this time, God begins to bless them. He begins to bless them because Josiah was a good king. He was a king who feared the Lord. He was a king who had begun to cast out all of the wicked that was happening in Judah. During Josiah's time as king, they had discovered what we now understand to be the book of Deuteronomy that had been hidden away. And as Josiah and those who are around him begin to read the law, they begin to see that God demands more of them than they're doing. That God is a jealous and holy God, and God does not want them in any way to be worshiping these false idols. And so Josiah begins to put in place reforms. That's where Zephaniah begins to write. We see here, and this is the only time that this happens in what we know as the minor prophets, we we see four generations of Zephaniah's lineage. He traces his lineage all the way back to being the son of Hezekiah. It's interesting because Hezekiah would have been the last good king of Judah before Josiah. And so here is this man who is related to the king, who has descended from this good king who had followed after God, and he comes and begins to write. And it looks like those around him listened. We have no other record of who Zephaniah is. We don't know anything else about him except for what is right here. And he begins to write about the judgment of God. He begins to write because Zephaniah realizes that though there is a good king who is sitting on the throne, though there is a king who is beginning to make reforms and beginning to do good things in God's view, that is not going to be sufficient for the people who God has called as His own to reform themselves and begin doing the things that God has called them to do. And so Zephaniah as a prophet, he stands before the people as a substitute for God's presence. The prophets would be those people who would come 
and share what God had to say. God was not there physically with them, so he would send his word through these prophets and they would begin to declare to the people who God was and what God wanted for them. If you look through all of these little books that we know as the minor prophets there at the end of the Old Testament, you'll find that time after time you read this phrase, the word of the Lord came to, or the word of the Lord that came to. This is important because this is how they heard from God. And friends, this morning, though we are looking at a text that doesn't seem to have a lot of hope, though we're looking at a text that is, frankly, very depressing, it is God's word that he has given to us to encourage and teach us. If you look beginning in verse 2, Zephaniah does not mess around. He, he doesn't work himself into this prophecy. He doesn't work himself into this word. There's no building up. If you think about the Apostle Paul, sometimes we, we really want to criticize the Apostle Paul for saying how negative he was. But if you look, he almost always gives a little bit of encouragement as he starts out his letter. There is no such encouragement here. He proclaims a message that is shocking. He proclaims God's judgment and it is swift and complete. He reminds his readers that even if they have been led in some false direction by a false teacher or teachers, they are still responsible. He reminds them in this book that they cannot be dependent on the faith of prior generations. It doesn't matter what their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers did. It doesn't matter for Josiah that his great-great-great-grandfather was a godly man it would become dependent on them to live up to their responsibilities as the people of God. And that's what I want us to see as we go through this book. I want to tell you there is hope in the book of Zephaniah. There is always hope in God's Word. It may take us a few weeks to get there, but if you think about the timing of this sermon series, we are quickly approaching Christmas. We are quickly approaching when God sent His Son to dwell among us. And that is the hope that Zephaniah points to. Friends, I think sometimes we forget that when God tells us about Himself, when He tells us about His good name and about who He is, He often, or not often, He always does so by telling us about both parts of His character. We see that in Zephaniah. That God is the God of hope and salvation, but at the same time, He is the God of judgment and wrath. He cannot be separated from either of them. And in this book, we will have the opportunity to consider both. So let's begin in verse 2. Verse 2 is... It's shocking, is it not? He says, I will utterly sweep away 
everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and how the Old Testament plays out as one big story of what God has done with this people that He called Israel, we know that very early on in his relationship with these people. As a matter of fact, before he has called them out as a separate nation, when he is still dealing with humanity as a whole, we read in the book of Genesis about a great flood. We read about a flood where God has looked across the earth and he has seen nothing good. Except for one man. He has seen one man who stands righteous before Him. Everyone that is, He looks and he, he sees nothing good. He can't find any reason to spare anyone except Noah. And so God talks about destruction and He talks about destroying the earth and sweeping them away. And this verse echoes that idea. Except it is even more complete. God sweeps away everything from the face of the earth. If you go on into verse 3, you see that He sweeps away everything that is swept away in the flood all the way down to the fish of the sea. Which if you go back to Genesis, are spared in the flood. This destruction that God sends is complete. Everything is gone. He lists away everything, or He lists here everything that he destroyed. Man, beasts, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. This is the reverse order of creation. If you look in creation, the fish are first, and then the birds, and then the beast, and then the man. Here, God reverses what he has made. He goes in the opposite direction. If you think back to creation, at creation he, he looks at everything as He creates it and He says what? It was good. It was good. As God speaks out of eternity and, and the earth appears and as the water is separated from the land and as the fish begin to, as the fish exist and as the birds begin to fly through the air and the plants are there and then man, He, he looks at all of it and He says it's good. But Zephaniah here pictures a time when God will look at everything that He has made and He no longer views it as good, but He sees that it has been corrupted utterly by sin and He destroys it. He's finished with it. Man, God's pinnacle act of creation, that thing that He gave life, us that He has made and He made us in His image. The high point of what God made and yet we were the first to rebel. We were the first to turn back. And so judgment falls swiftly upon man. Friends, we know this is a future event that He's talking about because if you go to the book of Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, Jesus refers to this event Jesus talks about sending His angels to wipe away the stumbling blocks and the wicked. 
It's the same language that's used there at the end of verse 3 when he says, and the rubble with the wicked. Jesus uses this verse to talk about what is coming when God sends judgment on the world. So this has not happened yet. Obviously, we're still here. Even if you wanted to take it and try to twist the words around to say that it was some event that happened thousands of years ago, it's not happened yet. There is a day coming when God will send this type of judgment. That's why He has called you and I as believers in Christ to share the gospel with those who are lost. Because He wants to send not judgment upon His creation, but He wants to send hope. He wants to send the gospel. He wants to give salvation. But for those who refuse to follow Him, for those who choose not to believe, God's judgment is swift. It is without mercy. And yet it is completely within His character. He describes in these first two verses universal judgment, but he doesn't stop there. If you look in verse 4, we see he begins to talk about judgment against a particular group of people. And when we look at this group of people, those who are a part of Judah and those who are inhabitants of Jerusalem, there's something we need to note about them immediately. These are the people who God had called to Himself. These were not people who were outside of the kingdom. These are not people who are outside of the influence of God. These are people who He has called to Himself. If we go back to the book of Genesis and we go to the calling of a man named Abram as he is called out of the country he lived and taken to a place that God would show him, we see God calling for himself a special people. And it only takes to verse 4 of Zephaniah's message for God's people to be included in this judgment. They had become complacent. And in coming, becoming complacent, they had begun to believe that they were above being judged. Now this was a ridiculous notion because, again, if we look at the history of Israel, after Solomon died, David's son, the kingdom is split. In the north was Israel, in the south was Judah. You notice here he doesn't say anything about Israel. By this time in history, Israel has been judged for their wickedness. They have been, many of them, carried off into captivity. They are no longer relevant because God had judged them. They had turned their back on Him. They had decided, we're not going to follow Him. We're going to follow these false gods. And so they are no more. So how ridiculous it is to think here, sitting in Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, God's city, the place where His temple was built, the place where His presence dwelt, how ridiculous it is to think that that is enough to save you. They're relying on past generations. They're relying on 
the holiness of someone long gone, and it comes back to haunt them. I want you to see here, he gives six areas where he judges God's people. Six areas where he judges God's people. The first, he says there at the end of verse 4, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. If you ever read through the Old Testament, it, it seems like every book you're in, there's a confrontation with this false god, Baal. Or for some of you, you may have always heard it pronounced Baal, but it's Baal, which is a little harder to say. Nonetheless, who was this guy? Well, Baal can be used to describe many, many false gods, and many were given this name. I'll read you a little something about Baal. Baal was the god of productivity. His function in Canaanite religion was to make land, animals, and humans fertile. They looked to him to, to make everything grow, to make everything happen, to make everything fertile. He was the god of productivity. Now, Baal was another name for the gross national product. And wherever people see, and listen to these things, see if it doesn't sound familiar Wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, a sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still being worshipped. Where does that sound like? Does that not sound like the place that we live and in the time that we live? They sought after Baal for security. If the fields were growing... If we had money in our pockets, then Baal was blessing us. And if we did not have those things, then we needed to do something to make Baal look upon us favorably. Baal was also the god of religious excitement and of, and of a sexual free-for-all. Human sexual acts were publicly offered to him to prompt him to perform his work of fertilization. No wonder his officiants were called the frenzied ones. Wherever excitement in religion becomes an end in itself, and wherever the cult of what helps replaces joy in what's true, Baal is worshipped. Friends, that describes not only our society, but many of our churches. And God says he's going to cut off from this place, the remnant of Baal. Josiah, when he became king and he discovered the book of the law, he began to kick out all of those people who followed after that false religion. As a matter of fact, many of them he killed. He saw his dedication to God as so important that those who were a part of God's people but worshipped false idols were put to death. But Zephaniah is writing here and he realizes that this is a false God who will not die. This is a false God who people will still cling to. And friends, there will be more people who worship this morning at the altar of Baal than worship at the altar of the Almighty God. Because we worship our bank accounts and our productivity 
We worship our economy. We live in a society that loves religious excitement and worships sexual freedom. But God is going to put that remnant away. We, as believers in Christ, must be cautious because we are often tempted to worship this false God. Remember, he is talking here about God's people. Secondly, end of verse 4, and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests. The priesthood in the day in which Zephaniah is writing, the priesthood was a family affair. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. That is where the priestly class came from. But what had begun to happen is that those who were supposed to be priests of God and those who were never supposed to be priests at all had set themselves up as false priests of these fake and false gods. The priests in the day in which Zephaniah is writing, they promoted sin instead of condemning it. They promoted the sinful acts of Baal. They promoted the sinful acts of these other false gods. And they went out and proclaimed them boldly. Instead of proclaiming the message of God that they had been given through the law and through the prophets, they went and proclaimed sinful acts as the way to please false gods. And so God here says that He is not only going to cut them off, He's going to remove those priests, but He's going to remove their names. God's judgment on this false religion is so great that He not only removes the ones who are doing it, but He removes their name from our thoughts. He removes their influence. He's going to cut off the remnant of Baal. He's going to cut off the idolatrous priests. Look at the third thing. This is a third group that, that worships false gods. He says, and those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. There were people in the day that Zephaniah lived who were going up on top of their houses and they were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. We see that today in what we would call astrology. They would go up and they would literally bow down before a planet like Jupiter and they would worship it. Or they would bow down before the sun and they would worship it. This is something that God had strictly forbidden. Why would you want to worship the sun or the moon or the stars when you have been called to worship the one who made the sun and the moon and the stars? The one who gives the sun its light. The one who makes the moon reflect the sun has called you to worship Him, and yet you would want to worship them. It really is no different than someone who would worship a tree or worship a mountain. Worshiping anything that has been created is foolish when you can worship the one who has created all. But that's not all that Zephaniah is talking about. He's also talking here about the way in which they are worshiping when they would go up on their roof and they would worship by themselves, they were practicing a way of worship that God had not granted them. 
If you look throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament and you look at the formation of the church, you will see that the worship of God has always been communal. I'm not saying we don't have acts of worship on our own. But this idea that we are capable of living and existing on our own and worshiping on our own is foolishness. We are made to worship together. We can't do it by ourselves. I was at a funeral not too long ago. A young man stood up and he was sharing about the life of the person who had died. And he made the point to say that that this person had, had felt so good worshiping by himself. That, that he had been a devoted Christian, but he, he worshipped at home. Friends, regardless of whether or not you think you can do that, do it well, it's not something God has granted us. God has called us to worship together. Look at the imagery of the New Testament. The church is the body. It is the family. And just as if a part of your body is cut off and removed, it ceases to be useful, so it is when we do not worship with the body of Christ. Not only were these people trying to worship the sun and the moon and the stars, but they were trying to say that they could go and worship by themselves. That they could do it on their own. They didn't need anyone else. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. God called a people for himself. God gave the law to a people through Moses. God gives the word to these prophets and they are to proclaim it to the people. Worship is something we do together. And when we don't, trust me, there will be a great temptation to worship false gods. Because instead of worshiping together where we can talk about God, we can talk about His Word, we can talk about it together, if we get off on our own, we will make God into our image. And we must not do so. Those who worship Baal, the false prophets, and those who worship the sun and the stars, judgment comes against them because they are devoted to other gods. But if you look at the last part of this, these verses, beginning in, in 5b, the second part of verse 5, we see that God sends judgment on the false worship of God. The first group of people, they worshiped false gods. The second group of people worship God falsely. Look at the first, the second part of verse 5. He says, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. He's talking about who he's going to cut off, who he's going to remove. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. These are what we would call syncretists. A syncretist is a person who takes two different things, especially in religion, takes two different religions and tries to bring them together. So the first party says, someone who bows down and worships the Lord. Your translation might say Yahweh, the proper name of God. One who bows down before God, the creator of the universe, and worships Him. 
That's good. But also bows down or swears by Milcom. This word here in the Hebrew language is very difficult to translate. We understand that it's talking about a false god, but trust me, there were a lot of false gods, and it could be talking about any number of them. Your translation might say Molech. If it says Molech, I want to tell you about who Molech was. Molech was a false god who also helped with fertility. But Molech did not want that you would have some type of perverse act in public. Molech's goal, or Molech's demand, was that you would pass your children through his fire. Molech, outside of Baal, may be the false god that the true God expresses the most hatred toward. Molech required the sacrifice of your children. We see that there were even kings, as a matter of fact, even kings in the lineage of Josiah who passed their children through the fires of Molech. Friends, if you, if you ever wonder what God thinks about life, especially the life of children, look at his disdain for Molech. Molech was an abominable God who wanted the death of children to give fertility. How could it be then that someone would bow down before God and swear allegiance to Him and yet at the same time go and swear allegiance to a God who promoted the death of children? That's exactly what they were doing. Friends, how often do we become guilty of this sin? Of maybe all of them that are listed here, I think this is the one we find ourselves most guilty of. We pledge our allegiance to God. We bow down before Him. We sing praises to Him. We attend worship in His house. But then we go and give our allegiance to other gods. Maybe, maybe the God of the universe, maybe our Creator gets one or two days a week, but other days we swear an allegiance to that which is not God. There is punishment and judgment for that. Our God is jealous. He doesn't come and just pat us on the back and say, it's all right. He doesn't look at our, our allegiance to false gods and say, well, it's, it's okay. You know, we like to dismiss that. We, we look at it and say, well, we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ, and that is true. We say, well, we've, we've been forgiven and God has washed that away. That is accurate. But do you think that God takes it lightly when we give Him our heart and then try to take it back and give it to another? When we reserve parts of our heart for something that is not God? God says He's going to cut off those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. There's no place for that. Friends, when we're guilty of that, it should burden our hearts. It shouldn't be something that we just write off. It shouldn't be something that we just say, well, it's not a big deal. We should realize that our hearts are still ugly with sin, that we still battle our sinful nature. 
But we should not dismiss it as okay. But it should break our hearts that the God of the universe who has created us and called us to Himself, who has given His Son to die for us, sometimes takes second place in our life. It should break our hearts and it should call us to repentance. Secondly here, there's the syncretists, but there's also the backsliders. He says in verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Jesus talks about this, does He not? Does He not talk about the man who puts his hand to the plow and then turns back? Friends, we all go through moments when we backslide. We all go through moments when our hearts break and we go in a direction that we should not. But these are people who have turned themselves from the Lord. Think about this. Think about the history of these people who he is writing to. They had been foreigners in another land and God gave them this land flowing with milk and honey. They had been slaves to another nation and God had performed miraculous signs and brought them out. They had turned their backs on Him time after time and He had forgiven them of their sin and He had welcomed them back into His family. He had given them every opportunity to have everything in His creation. They were the envy of the world because God had a special relationship with them. A God who had an easy burden. A God who did not require the sacrifice of their children. A God who did not require human sacrifices. A God who did not require all of these terrible things that these false gods required. And yet they turned away from Him. How is it that we can claim the name of Christ? that He has saved us through His blood, that He has given us new life in Him and the promise of an eternity in heaven with God forever and yet turn back. I would say when it comes to the Christian faith, we, when we see people turn away. We see them run in the other direction. When we see them spit in God's face and turn their back on Him, it's because they never knew Christ. And God does not Take that lightly. We can't stand in front of Him on Judgment Day and say, God, I went to church when I was a kid, or, or God, I was baptized at this point, or, or God, I served in this position. When God looks at us and we've turned our back on Him, He will not know who we are. The third and the last. These are people who are practic practical atheists who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Friends, that describes the great majority of our world today. The great majority of the people who live in our world do not seek the Lord, do not inquire of Him. Now remember, these are the people who God has made a relationship with. These are people who God has, has called to this place where they live at, and yet they just they have no relationship. They don't, they don't call on Him. They don't seek Him. They don't, they don't desire His presence. They don't read His Word. They're not engaged with Him. They're atheists. They've decided He doesn't exist. That He's not important. 
How sad it is in the country in which we live. A country where you can go to church freely. A country where the Bible is printed in every language that is spoken in our country and readily available at almost any store for purchase. That there are people who do not seek the Lord and do not inquire of Him. God doesn't forgive that. Oh, we may want God to. We may desperately want God to forgive, to look at that and say, they, give them more time, give them another opportunity. Friends, He has given that responsibility to us. He has given us the responsibility of sharing with these people who do not know Him the love of Christ, the message of the Gospel. Because there's a day coming, a day that is dark, a day that is dreadful. And in that day, God is going to pour out His justice. He's going to show grace to those who have followed after Him. He's going to show grace and mercy to those who have claimed the name of Christ and who have followed after Him. But He is not going to show that grace to all. You know, when I walk away from this verse from these verses, I, I come away with this overwhelming sense of what sin has done to our direction. What sin, or how sin has infected our moral perceptions of the world. I think about the passage in Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but that way leads to death. And when we read these things, we, we have to realize that we've been so guilty here. That there have been times when we have done these very things. That there have been times in our lives when we have lived as practical atheists, not seeking the Lord or inquiring of Him. There have been times when we have turned back from following after Him. There have been times when we have pledged our allegiance to Him and to others. And what that tells me is that sin, sin is so corrupted, how we perceive the world around us, that it causes us to make poor judgments about what we are doing. So many of us, myself included, have become consumed with worrying about the things of this world, with worrying about productivity or our economy or our bank accounts, that we forget that our God is in control. That He is over all and has made all and will give us all that we need. That He controls the world. He controls our economy. He controls our politics. And we have nothing to fear in them. And yet sin has so infected our moral perceptions, has infected the way that we view the world, that so many times we think that we have to do it on our own. We think that we must worry about those things. And when we do, when we cease to be dependent on Christ and His Word, we fall in easily to these temptations. See, God is jealous. We think of that as a bad word. God uses that word of Himself. He's jealous. He doesn't want you to give your attention elsewhere. You might say, well, why, why would God be jealous? 
God shouldn't be jealous. Jealousy is a bad thing. He made everything. He created all that there is. He made you. He made everyone around you. He made everything that you have and everything that you see. He has a right to be jealous. And so He wants your undivided attention. He wants you to worship Him and Him alone. He wants you to be dependent on Him and Him alone. He wants your allegiance to be to Him and Him alone. And yet sin corrupts us. Sin leads us in terrible directions. As the people of God, we often set our faces in rebellion toward Him. But what He calls us this morning is to look toward the cross. He calls us to look toward what God has done through Christ on Calvary. He looks he tells us and calls on us to look toward the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Because in the day that Zephaniah is describing, that's our only hope. In the day that Zephaniah is talking about when God, when God pours out His judgment, when God calls His people to Himself, and when God executes His justice, our only hope will be Christ. Friends, this morning I want to encourage you with this. Even though we fall frequently into these sins, even though our allegiance is tested every day and we are pulled back and forth, God has given us hope in Jesus Christ. And if you know Him this morning, he is crying out to you. He is calling to you. Look toward me. Look away from the sin that entangles you and ensnares you and look toward me. Christian, that's the only hope you have. Some of you are here this morning. You don't know Jesus. You might admit, you might not, that you worship a false god or your allegiance are here or there. It might just all be churchy talk to you, and that's fine. But I want to tell you this. In life, whether you believe there's a day coming when, when God will return or God will pour out judgment or whatever, I want to promise you that the only place that anyone in this room will find hope is in Christ. And if you do not know Him this morning, you have no hope. I can't give it to you. No one here can give it to you. Your mama, your daddy, they can't give it to you. The only hope you have is in Christ. And I would plead with you this morning, if you do not know Him, that you would turn from wherever you're going and you would seek after Christ. I would love to show you how. There's a room full of people who would love to show you how. But let me promise you, that's the only place you can find hope. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, today we are, we are grateful that we, that we can know you. The God of hope and salvation, the God of judgment and wrath, the God who is perfectly just in all things. 
The God who in His justice sent His Son to die in our place. We were deserving because of our sin death. But in Christ you have given us life. And God, I know this morning that there are those here who do not know you. God, they, they've never placed their faith and trust in you. God, they might be extremely religious or they might be, God, extremely uh, humble or merciful. Or God, they might show great grace to people, but they do not know you. And God, my prayer this morning is that you would prick their heart. God, you would speak to them in ways that we cannot. That you would tell them of your great love and your great mercy on sinners. That you would tell them, God, that your desire is that none should perish, but that all would come to know you. God, I just pray that you give them that hope this morning. God, call them to respond to your message, to your word. God, I pray that you would work in this time. And God, we just ask you this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me. If God is speaking to you this morning, in whatever way, if He's showing you areas of your life where, where you have got split devotion, would you respond as we sing?